0: we are back. Let's talk a little bit about some science and medicine and things of that nature. I was quite stunned by a headline from March 17th uh, from Medscape Medical News that I think we should talk about. This is something that I've always known in my gut was true, but the headlines are still startling, which are that although 18% of the population was infected in recent outbreaks of seasonal influenza, and also in the 2009 H1N1 pandemic of influenza, what do you think uh, the percentage of the infections that were symptomatic were? A lot of folks think, well, flu is pretty bad. I mean, you know, you're going to know if you have it. I mean, you know, 80, 90% of people that are infected are going to know that. Well, it turns out, no. Only 23% of infections were symptomatic, which led only 17% of people to seek medical attention. We've often said, and I think we've said it on this program, that uh, when it comes to deciding whether you have flu, (laughs) you're going to really make a good guess as if it's as part of uh, a seasonal outbreak. It's hard to know in most instances whether you have influenza virus or coronavirus or adenovirus or rhinovirus or XYZ virus. And this this study shows that's just more true than we know. This headline comes from a study by Andrew Hayward, MD from University College London in the UK who said that rep- re- who said the reported cases of influenza represent the tip of a very large clinical and subclinical iceberg that is mainly invisible to national surveillance systems that only record cases seeking medical attention. He added most people don't go to the doctor when they have flu and even when they do they're often not recognized as having influenza which shows you, I think, how much medicine really is an art and not a science. Now, how they determined this is kind of interesting. The investigators followed the course of seasonal and pandemic influenza over a course of five successive cohorts in England from 2006 to 2011, which represented 5,448 person-seasons follow-up. Before and after each influenza season, participants gave blood samples for influenza serology. Weekly contact with all participating households allowed identification of any cases of cough, cold, sore throat, or influenza-like illness. Any participant with such symptoms was asked to provide a nasal swab on day two of illness to identify respiratory viruses using real-time polymerase chain reaction testing. This is is how they determined that each winter influenza infected an average of 18% of unvaccinated people. The most startling thing among these stats is that, eight, is that 77% of influenza infections appear to be asymptomatic, meaning you don't even know you're sick. Can you still be infectious and pass it on? Yes. Although the devil is certainly in the details of trying to determine um, how that's going down. And in some other news from the world of medicine that's more encouraging, we have this. Using a breakthrough cloning technique, scientists have created insulin-producing cells from a diabetic woman's own cells, which is raising hopes for effective new treatments for diabetes, Parkinson's, and other chronic diseases. The procedure in which cloned cells were successfully created from adult tissue rather than from fetal or infant tissues involves removing a nucleus from a human egg cell and replacing it with a nucleus from a donor cell. Now, the success so far is involving clone cells in mice, which are transplanted into mice, not human beings. But the long-term goal is to use cells to treat people with type 1 diabetes, which occurs when the body is unable to naturally produce insulin. Dieter Egli of the New York Stem Cell Foundation was quoted as saying, it may be a bit in the future, but I think this is going to become a reality, and I think he's right. Now, we do note in this program that we're often skeptical about some of the things we read. (laughs) I think that's a fair summary, don't you think, Mr. McMillan? Yes, I do. Well, here's one we're a little skeptical of, but we hope is correct. It's noted that the secret to dark chocolate's health benefits may be in our guts. New research has found that bacteria in our stomachs feast on an indigestible part of cocoa fermenting it into an anti-inflammatory compound that's supposedly good for the heart. This is according to the Los Angeles Times. The key lies in antioxidants called polyphenols, which are found in dark chocolate and cocoa powder, as well as dark berries and black tea. The molecules in many polyphenols are too large to be absorbed through the stomach wall into the blood to be used as nutrients, which is where the intestinal microbes step in and lend a hand. In an experimental setting in a lab, researchers found that bifidobacterium and lactic acid bacteria broke the polyphenols down into smaller molecules capable of making it into the blood. When they're absorbed, they lessen the inflammation of cardiovascular tissue, reducing the long-term risks of stroke, according to food scientists at Louisiana State University. So, is dark chocolate a health food? We certainly hope so. And speaking of popular substances uh, found in, quote, beans, unquote, out in nature, we have this little item on the world's favorite drug from The Week magazine. That drug would, of course, be caffeine. Our understanding on this program is that the number two most traded commodity in world trade after petroleum is coffee. Could be when you throw in tea and... Things like yerba mate and soft drinks and whatever, caffeine's pretty damn popular. Noted the the last word summary about caffeine, which showed a picture of Juan Valdez, (laughs) who was uh, a marketing success we'll talk about in a minute. But the article notes that like coca leaves, from which we derive cocaine, coffee beans are laden with a psychoactive alkaloid compound. A simple blend of organic compounds that is easily refined into a bitter white powder. It was noted that for hundreds of years coffee was used in its raw form, astringent and bitter, boiled or rolled with animal fat into a crude approximation of energy pellets. People clearly were chomping the coffee berries for the buzz, not the flavor. Yet, modern coffee tastes great. But it's 400 years of selective breeding and refinements in growing, harvesting, roasting, and brewing that have taken it from its unappealing natural state to the aromatic, smooth, flavorful beverage it has become. But of course, without the caffeine, nobody would have bothered with the plant in the first place. I believe we reported on visiting a coffee plantation in Costa Rica on this program some years back. And I think Costa Rica does produce some pretty good coffee, but it's not as famous as Colombian which Mr. Miller reminds us, is the richest kind. Well, it turns out Juan Valdez, the symbol of Colombian coffee, uh, was reminiscent of a folk icon, but uh, really was an invention of Madison Avenue. He was created in 1960 by the ad firm Doyle Bain Burnock for the National Federation of Coffee Growers of Colombia. The alliance between Colombian coffee growers and Madison Avenue ad men grew from a desperate situation— a coffee market in crisis. The piece notes that despite Americans' conspicuous embrace of gourmet coffee, as exemplified by the Starbucks on seemingly every corner, of course I'm not sure Starbucks can be (laughs) called gourmet coffee, but I'm no expert. But anyway, it's noted that our grandparents drank more coffee than we do. A lot more. American coffee consumption peaked In the World War II years, back then coffee was flat out winning in the competition against other beverages. Americans drank 46 gallons annually, which works out to nearly 20 pounds of beans per person. But by the late 1950s, facing competition from Coke and other caffeinated soft drinks, coffee consumption was falling just as production was ramping up, leaving the market glutted and prices plummeting. In Colombia, coffee prices dropped 50%. So that's when Juan Valdez trudged into newspapers and onto TV screens. Dressed like a simple but proud coffee grower, he emphasized the care farmers took to produce a high-quality cup of coffee. He showed people how farmers picked coffee by hand and dried it in the sun. Juan Valdez taught Americans to appreciate coffees of origin or single-origin coffees by emphasizing the difference between just any coffee and Colombian coffee. He became one of the best-known pitchmen of the era, alongside the Marlboro Man and the Pillsbury Doughboy. Anyway, there's a lot you could say about coffee and caffeine, and uh, if we had more time, we would do that. But we don't, so we'll return to that sometime in the future. As mentioned at the top of the program, we will at this point renew a conversation we had some weeks back with Elizabeth Orpina, Aggie Editor-in-Chief. Last time we spoke to Elizabeth, things were looking pretty good for a resurrection of a print edition of the Aggie, but alas, things did not go the way we might have hoped, and to update us and to talk about where things may go in the future, we're happy to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Elizabeth Orpina.
1: Hello. Hello. Elizabeth,
0: it, it, when we last talked, just to remind our listeners, uh, things were looking very good. They and Apparently, a, um, a ballot measure had passed with the student body at UC Davis, and you guys were supposed to get some money, but things just didn't go that way. Well, what happened?
1: It became really political. Um, it got caught up in administration and um, some student government rules, and... Basically, through the student government courts, it was nullified. And so Can I stop you
0: right there? Because I, I'm just curious, how does a student body, the ASUCD organization, nullify their own election?
1: Well, they nullified the decision of the referendum.
0: Well, how do they do that? They just arbitrarily, by fiat, decide that elections are no good? I mean, what was there some reasoning behind this?
1: Basically, they uh, one person who was running for Senate, who didn't win, um the court case against the Elections Committee chair um, for mispronouncing the election for the Aggie and in the courts they brought up numbers saying that according to the specific language of our bill we should be declared um, as not getting the referendum because of specific words in our language that don't match up with the actual rules of the election and because the elections chair didn't even show up to the court case...
0: So you had, you had no one acting as your advocate.
1: Exactly. And <laughs> we weren't allowed to talk. And it, it, it wasn't directly involving us, of course, but it was directly affecting us. And so when they decided that the elections chair had mispronounced the election, basically they said, well, we announced that this election is nullified...
0: So it was the basis of this this wannabe senator apparently got the whole thing overturned based on on her run for the Senate. Is that how it worked?
1: Um, I would say so. It's the same girl who did the tweet about, like, making sure we'll never see our 100th birthday.
0: That sounds pretty unbiased.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, and she has some friends in ASUCD court, and she got the guy who is actually, uh, he's the new controller of ASUCD. He actually fought in the court um, against us. So he essentially, the new controller killed a unit before he got into office.
0: well, didn't you guys then have any recourse with the administration, or did they wash their hands of the whole thing?
1: The administration decided that they're only going to do whatever the student government decided, so they didn't want to intervene you know the one one of the times they actually didn't want to intervene um, and they just let it happen and then decided, well, the court's killed it, so we're not
0: going to act upon it. So what that meant was that you guys were not getting any extra dough, and there was not going to be any print edition of the paper, and, and I guess until uh, next fall, is there any recourse coming down the road? I'm actually, I'm getting ahead of myself here, because I know there's an article by Richard Chang in the, um, the Sacramento Bee, noting that a deal could revive UCD's newspaper, so I guess let's, let's just cut to the chase, and how are things looking for the immediate future?
1: The immediate future, um, there is no immediate future because it's a lot more complicated than Richard wrote. Okay. We were approached by various news newsgroup, Vacaville Reporter, and we also have received another offer from the Davis Enterprise. So what we learned, we have to go through administration in order to do an external contract. And so we're going through special committees that deal with these kind of third-party contracts And it's a multi-month kind of activity slash um, process where we come up with what people have offered us, they put it out to bid, and any group in the nation can bid on it. And so once um, anyone bids on it, they bring it back, and then there's a vetting process through the committee as well as those involved. So we would be involved in kind of seeing what everyone has to offer. And in the end, if we like one of the deals, we can take it.
0: What time frame are we talking about? But by, by fall, will you be able to do this? That's
1: going to be by, in winter.
0: Oh, by next winter? Yeah. Oh my God, that's terrible.
1: Yeah. So at this point, me and my business manager aren't too concerned right now with making too many decisions because we have a couple weeks left, and the next editor in chief was hired, and we're leaving it up to her to you know to do to do what she wants to do because at this point. We did everything we could, um, and we're ready to pass it along.
0: Well, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. Uh, the Aggie's been such an institution. It, it almost made its 100th birthday and sadly did not.
1: Technically, it's still going to reach its 100th birthday. We're just not going to be in front.
0: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And, and I assume then that uh, there's a chance to basically get more hired positions, and the Aggie's just going to do what it's always done and just make the best of things. Exactly. Well, um, what, what what paths do you think are, are possible that uh, the new editor-in-chief and others may, may wish to go down?
1: If the editor-in-chief for next year, along with her staff, decides that they want to do, um, pursue a referendum again, they have that option, so they would probably pursue that um, in next winter's election, but they have to make that decision at the same time as possibly vetting some offers for partnerships. So the next editor-in-chief just has the decision to either... Pursue something else, um, go for the referendum again, or pursue a partnership.
0: So it it comes down really one or the other?
1: Basically, unless they come up with some new idea that none of us have thought of.
0: Oh, my. Well, I I should note in closing that this idea about having a partnership with with an outside organization, my understanding from the article by Richard Chang and others uh, is that this is not this is not something that's that's unheard of. A lot of other college newspapers across the country are, have have done exactly this, have they not?
1: I haven't heard of many that have done it. It doesn't seem like an outrageous idea, and I have the support of the previous editor in chief because she was thinking about doing the same exact thing. We've gotten a couple of people in the past who worked for the Aggie actually don't really like the idea, and they're kind of speaking up to the alumni group. We're kind of responding with, you know, tell us why, give us your reasons. And if you have any other better ideas, please offer them up. Because we're instead of just sitting there, we're trying to do something.
0: Well, is there any chance the alumni might want to kick in a little dough to help the Aggie out? Maybe that's a, maybe that's another uh, avenue you guys may want to pursue. Get them on board and, and you know shake down some of the people like myself who are graduates. I know.
1: See, the thing is, we've had a lot of offers. Yeah. A lot of people have said, like, "How can I donate to the Aggie?" Yeah. So we're trying to pursue that option. However, that's not a stable enough thing to base a budget off of, because we have no idea. There's not going to be a sure. steady stream of donations. Sure, It's just a lot of cooks in the kitchen right now who are trying to fight to see who can actually do something, but the next editor-in-chief was chosen, and that kind of sets the tone for uh, the future of the Aggie.
0: All right, well, tell her she's got a forum here if she wants to come talk about it on the show as you pass the baton to her. We'll continue to cover this. I think Aggie uh, uh, deserves better than it's gotten of late, and we, we're optimistic that good sense will prevail here in the end. I hope so. Well, Elizabeth Orpina, Aggie Editor-in-Chief, thank you for speaking with us again. And, uh, I, I, you know, I just we're just going to have to hope for the best here. Come back sometime. Give us a, maybe you want to give us an update down the road, too. Of
1: course. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, uh, let's, let's do one more item before we're taking a break um, because I think we need a little inspiration. And uh, it's noted that if you are looking for some inspiration, one good way to get it might be to take a hike. A new study has concluded that people generate more creative ideas while walking than while sitting. In an experiment, a group of 45 Stanford undergrads were asked to come up with an alternative use for common items like buttons. They were first tested while sitting in a desk then on a treadmill while walking at an easy pace. 81% of the subjects improved their creative output, defined as generating appropriate and original ideas, while on the move. And what's more, a variation in the test found that the benefits of walking lingered on as participants came up with significantly more and subjectively better ideas when they took the creativity test post-walk, than pre-walk. Author Marilyn Opezo of Santa Clara University told the New York Times, it really seems that it's the walking that matters. I think it's possible that walking may allow the brain to break through some of its hyper-rational filters. Make sure a note of that, Mr. McMillan. Let's, let's be sure to take down our hyper-rational filters when we can. We got to take a short break, so let's do it. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away.